This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hey, 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 this is Jackie, and uh, my nickname is Tush. I am the League of Women Voters co-president, League of Women Voters of Oklahoma County. And today I have with me Camille Landry, who is the owner of uh, Nappy Roots Bookstore and also a very good friend of mine. I always say that when I am near Camille, I feel like I am in the presence of a live Black history. Um, Just a very dear person to me is like uh, when I need some encouragement, I'm able to pick up the phone, call Camille and say, I am feeling very, I always say disencouraged. And I know that disencouraged is not a word. (laughs) It's discouraged. But um, whenever I need anything from her, she's always there to support me. So I welcome her to this show and I want her to introduce herself and tell everybody what Nappy Roots Bookstore is and then What made you decide to open a bookstore in Oklahoma City? First of all, thank you. I didn't pay Jackie for that, but I think I owe her a pie at the very least. So I am Camille Landry, and among other things, I uh, am one of the founders and the operator of Nappy Roots Bookstore, uh, Shameless Commercial, 3705 Spring Lake Drive in Oklahoma City, near the intersection of 36 and Kelly on the east side. Um, and we are an African and African-American bookstore that also carries, uh, material from other marginalized communities, but primarily we're a black bookstore. And I wanted to have bookstore because we don't have a bookstore and there was no specific place that you could go where literature and art that reflects my community lives And also there was no place to go in the community that we owned and controlled where people can come together to do the work of the community, by which I mean we've um, uh, dealt with issues ranging from homelessness homelessness, to uh, food insecurity to educational issues to policing and incarceration um, and to just the need, the need for mental health and health care, we have dealt with uh, providing Black joy because that is so critical. A community without joy is a community that cannot exist and thrive. And so we try really hard to make Nappy Roots all of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that that's a really important need in the community. Our kids need a place where they can go and pick a book off the shelf with a person that looks like them. Our adults do too. Yes, yes. I was just going to say that. Not just the kids, me too, as an adult. Like, yeah, you can go up there. The chairs are comfortable and just sit. I get to go up there and just sit and talk to Camille. And she's such a knowledgeable person. And I mean, she reads the books that are in her store. So she has a plethora of knowledge that you're able to just sit there and chop it up with her and enjoy the conversation. And she's going to give you the best advice. And the best thing about her advice is she's going to give you advice that is actually applicable. Um, You know, some people you ask them for advice and they give you like a, a a rum dum answer, you know, they'll give you advice that they wouldn't necessarily follow themselves. But I always feel comfortable with Camille because everything that she tells me, I know that is something that she would live by. So the east side of Oklahoma City, um, 
Oklahoma just overall has um, a lot of statistics that we don't want to, to be in the realm of. Camille is a writer for the Alliance for Global Justice. And um, I try to, whenever the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma does a newsletter, I try to include um, her pieces because they are well thought and they are well um, researched. My question for you is what made you want to become a writer for the Alliance for Global Justice? I've been writing all my life, first of all. I mean, literally since I was a little kid. Um, so writing is just something that I do and have done always. But I got involved with Alliance for Global Justice because it is exactly what its name suggests. Um, I'm My title there is National Co-Coordinator. And my specific assignment for AFGJ, that's its acronym, is to develop a human rights school, a school that trains human rights activists. It trains people to recognize and witness and document human rights abuses within the United States and by the United States globally. Mm -hmm. And we are forming a database that will collect and coordinate all of the all of this data, collate this data. For instance, if I wanted to know right now um, information about how the death penalty applies to people, I would have a hard time teasing that information out. Um, because a lot of states don't report. The same thing is definitely true of police violence against citizens. It's hard to collect that data because mm -hmm. the state doesn't mm -hmm. tell on itself. Right. And so when, when you're trying to address these really grievous issues, I'm talking about black and brown bodies dying on the ground with somebody's knee on their neck, it's very hard to get good data. Mm -hmm. And so we decided that we're going to go to the source. We're going to go to the people. So that's my main task uh, with the Alliance for Global Justice. And the writing piece is, is just kind of a, a corollary to that. I would say to that, shout out to OCJR, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, because they right have really been talking about pushing um, to get the, the, the numbers, to be able to get the numbers for the Department of Corrections in the hands of the people, in the hands of the legislators in order to make better or introduce better bills and introduce better legislation for the next year and to improve Oklahoma. And then another shout out to Evita Fox that just became a uh, League of Women Voters board member on the Oklahoma side. She works for OCJR. So a lot of these statistics, they affect um, a lot of the people that you see in your store, people that visit the store on a regular basis and just come there for needs besides um, book reading. Um, and the piece that I am putting in the uh, League of Women Voters newsletter this month, it's titled Nobody's Child that Camille wrote. And so I would like for you to tell us a little bit more about that piece and, and why you felt the need to write it. Well, the total, the, the full title of that piece is Nobody's Child, Victims of the U.S. Child Welfare System. So there are hundreds of thousands of children who are languishing in foster care in the United States, even as we speak. If you live here in Oklahoma, um, the, the news has been flooded with the terrible story of a four-year-old who was beaten to death on Christmas Day mm -hmm. by her caregivers. Her funeral was held yesterday. She was beaten and left in a, in a shallow grave someplace um, near Rush Springs, Oklahoma. 
There are more than 407,000 children in foster care in the United States. Now, here's an interesting number. Oklahoma is number 28 in terms of population in the United States. We rank number 28. So, you know, we're more than halfway down the list of the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. But we rank number 10 in the number of children whom we remove from their parents' homes. In much the same way, and this is definitely 100% connected, I like to tell people that the zip code that I live in and that the bookstore is in, 73111, is the world center, the epicenter for incarceration. Here's what I mean by that. That zip code has more incarcerated people, basically, than any other zip code in the state. Hmm. Oklahoma is frequently number one in incarceration. It's never out of the top five. They're in a constant battle with Louisiana and Texas and Alabama hmm. to see how many people that they can lock up. But we we get the number one spot pretty often. And for women, And definitely. for women, we're definitely number one. Okay, that zip code, number one in the solar system, my people. And so when you when you look at that level of it's an attack, it is it is warfare just as surely as if tanks were rolling down our street. I am here to tell you, and I have actually put this to the test, that you will not find a block in that zip code in which nobody who lives there has done time. Mm. Upwards of 80% of the children who attend public school in my neighborhood, that is from pre-K to 12, have one or both parents who are or have been locked up. If you think that does not affect every aspect of life in our community, you're not paying attention. It is so much that it is hard to wrap your head around. So when you talk about those kids who are who are in foster care, by the way, of those kids, about about 4% of all the children in the United States, 4% of all children in the United States mm-hmm. are in formal kinship care. That means that they are with grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and it may be that they're with the lady that taught um, the music in summer school. Kinship can include unofficial kin, just somebody who, who knows the child and had a relationship with her or him. Um, 4% of all the kids in the United States removed from their home. And then hundreds of thousands more kids who are in what they call shadow foster care. These are kids who are left with uh, relatives or friends without going through court often because people are afraid to relinquish their children and very reluctant to relinquish their children to state care because it is such a horrible situation. But it means that these guardians for these kids are without any kind of support. They don't get coverage for medical care, for food or for clothing or anything like that. I will say that in a lot of the community work that I do, I talk to a lot of teachers, um, a lot of counselors, and Unfortunately, um, and and I'm kind of divided on the unfortunately or the fortunately, um, I literally have them tell me that they are reluctant to reach out to DHS in situations. Um, You know, they're the teachers at the school, they're the counselors at the school because they feel like DHS overreaches on their power. Um, And oftentimes 
they find or not even that they find, they've seen where a, a small situation gets blown up into a catastrophe and how the aftermath of how it affects the other children in the household, um, they say that it's just not worth it. And I've even had um, several say the exact word, I hate DHS. And so while I, going back to the fortunately and unfortunately, while I say it's unfortunate because the situation of the little girl um, on Christmas. So there are situations where DHS does need to be involved. And so it's really sad, really heartbreaking that people are reluctant to reach out because a lot of the times that overreach is so overreaching that we're not helping the people who need to be helped. And then you're taking kids away where they didn't actually need to be taken away from the home. And so there's a a huge push for criminal justice reform a lot of nonprofits and organizations are pushing for criminal justice reform right now and i want to definitely focus on um the intersectionality of criminal justice reform with children um in the juvenile justice system and then also in the child protective services system so real facts firsthand how do you see how the politics of these legislators are affecting the east side of Oklahoma City? Well, for starters, our legislature has traditionally moved more toward a punitive model than a rehabilitative model. And that has to do with criminal justice for both adults and children. And it washes over into the child welfare system. And when you couple that with almost a a ridiculously low level of available services, an almost absent social safety net, then you've got a recipe for disaster. Um, For instance, there are not nearly enough beds or placement slots for people seeking help with drug abuse. And like as in most other negative things, Oklahoma is one of the top in the nation for drug abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, for substance abuse, alcoholism and and street drugs and legal drugs as well. So we have a significant proportion of our population that is struggling with addiction. However, we do not have beds for the vast majority of people that seek help. Mm -hmm. There is no place for them to go. And then for the people who are most bitterly affected, uh, which would be like women or families with young children where custody of their children is on the line and there's no slot for them to go. So they'll get arrested for possession of drugs or for use of drugs, go before the judge, and the judge will say, if you want to keep your kids, you got to go to treatment. Where are you going to go? Right. A significant, one person that I know well is in Texas right now because that was the closest that she could get to drug treatment program. However, when she goes back to court, the judge is going to say, you're going to lose custody of your kids because you didn't, you know, you didn't do this in time. I mean, this is her fear. So if she didn't have the ability to go to Texas, you know, she had to pay to get down there, mm-hmm. she would have lost them already. The legislative, legislative season starts every February. What advice would you give to legislators um, for them to think about how the, whatever they're trying to pass, whatever law they're trying to pass, 
what should they think about on how that is going to actually affect real people? For starters, there aren't any easy answers, okay? You can't improve the child welfare system without improving the mental health system. Uh, A former uh, director of the Department of Corrections um, was known to say that he was running the number one mental health provider in the state, and that is absolutely true. The number one provider is the State Department of Corrections with Oklahoma County Jail and Tulsa County Jail following in that order. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that that there is no place for people to go to get help in a proactive way. And then they end up getting locked up. And once they're locked up, they're really not getting therapy. They're being locked up and brutalized by a prison system. Um, that and That's another whole conversation. But it's it's brutalizing. okay. And then when they come out, all they are is bitter and better at crime. They are not rehabilitated. They are not improved. They are not educated. They are not supported. None of these things apply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if I were going to say something to the legislature, I would say, look at the underlying causes. okay? if we had a better education system people could get jobs. People could get jobs, better paying jobs. And maybe they wouldn't be so bitter and so frustrated and so downtrodden that they need to pick up a drug. Yeah. You know, um, if we had a better education system, we could attract better industry to the state. People could get jobs that support them rather than having to work two gigs at Walmart and and someplace else like that for minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And not be with their kids, by the way, uh, in an attempt to just keep food on the table. It is all intersectional. Yeah. I was talking to uh, someone this morning um, about uh, there's a bill, something to the extent of uh, if you attack or uh, um, offend uh, a, a volunteer or the people at the voting precincts, um, then that will turn into a felony. And so the person I was talking to, the conversation ended up, you know, I was saying, I just totally don't agree with that for number one, we've already got the highest incarceration rates in so many areas. Why are we trying to create more felonies that, you know, and then you have to think about um, whose interpretation is, um, worthy of being a felony, like the offense, the actual offense. If you didn't jump on the person and you're just like intimidating them, quote unquote, is is that what we're trying to pass this bill for um, to give another person a felony? And then, you know, and then we ended up talking about the mental aspect of it. Like, you know, and just politics can be frustrating. So I can imagine um, a person being at um, uh, their voting precinct and automatically just thinking about what am I going to vote for? And if it's something that has affected them personally, they're trying to vote for it, they might already be irritated in their head. You know, you just never know what a person is going through. So the the mental aspect of it, you know, people are walking around angry a lot of the times. And then in Oklahoma, unfortunately, be, because we do have these statistics of, you know, we've got high homelessness, um, people that don't have affordable housing. Um, of course, the incarceration, we've got high um, pregnancy death rates. Um, we've got uh, 
the we're I think we're like bottom 10 for the difference in uh, women and men's pay. Um, I mean, the highest uh, domestic violence rates. I think we're actually still number one right now on that. Um, I mean, I can just keep going and going. The education thing, I mean, that's a big thing this legislative season is the education because I'm sure people have seen all over Facebook the our education rates in Oklahoma, the curriculum, we're down. I mean, one of the uh, uh, polls that I read said that we were dead last 50 in education. Other ones that I've read have, you know, rated us at like 45 or 46 or something like that. But regardless, we're bottom five. So just dealing with that alone, um, that the, you you have a people or you have a community of people that are walking around angry for whatever reason, you know, and they're just trying to survive on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, they might not even know how they're going to get to to work the next day. You know, they might not even know how they're going to get fed the next day because we've got, uh, we're low on the the food scale as well. Um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? For po- poverty, poverty, food insecurity. Yes, yeah, yeah, food insecurity. We're low there. Um, you know, so if, it, you know, in I was also talking about Maslow's hierarchy need, hierarchy of needs on my last podcast. So if we've got so many people that are down at the bottom of that pyramid. I mean, of course, you. what is the mental aspect of it? And that definitely feeds into why we have um, the high alcoholism rates and the high uh, drug use rates. Because if you're frustrated, you know, unfortunately, for some reason, the human uh, psyche wants to, craves drugs for some people. And and then you've you got that circle going. And it just keeps going and going and going. See, people who who research these things will tell you that the number one cause of substance abuse is adverse childhood experiences. It is trauma, particularly trauma that occurs when you were a child. There's an important thing that we haven't talked about yet. You know, my daddy was in the army and my stepdad was in was in the Marines. And so um, they often uh, uh, disagreed with each other on many things. But one of the things both of them said is um, crap rolls downhill. Crap wasn't the word that they used. <laughs> crap rolls downhill. So whatever bad stuff is happening, it starts at the top. And the trickle down theory is for real, but not in the way that Ronald Reagan meant it. Okay, so who is at the bottom of the heap in American society in everything? And that is people of color, black, brown, indigenous, and other ethnic and religious minorities. Okay. And so black children are more than twice as likely to be placed in foster care as white kids. Black kids are subject to disproportionate rates of school discipline and criminalization. And being a foster kid compounds this risk, all right? So you're talking about children, uh, black parents are more likely to be affected by the criminal justice system than white parents who do the exact same crime, the exact Mm -hmm. same action, will get a black person or a brown person or an indigenous person locked up, okay? And their kids put in, in foster care. So... When the legislature is talking about uh, about addressing these issues, they don't talk about race. They say, well, this is race blind, but it's not. 
when you, there's my voice again, when you talk about increasing uh, felony convictions, you're talking about locking up more black and brown people, period. Yeah. You know, you don't have to use those words, but you're already, the number of police in my neighborhood compared, which is here in the, in the center city, compared to the police where my daughter lives in a suburb, she never sees a cop. And they pass by my house every hour almost. All right. So this disproportionate degree of policing and of of arrest and of conviction and of incarceration is not necessarily intended to be racial, but that and I'm giving them benefit of the doubt there, you know, um, but it, it in fact is. We have a bunch of laws on the books that say people have a right to protect themselves. I felt threatened. Okay, come on, people. Who is the most threatening person in this society? And I would say it would be a black man. You know, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had my, my sons on the way, literally on the way to church, choir robe over their arm, and somebody feels threatened by them and calls the police on them. Okay? I had my son, the neighbor called the police on my son, and he's literally got his choir robe over his arm, said that kid busted into somebody's house and stole something. People are afraid of black men. Okay, we've got laws that say it's okay to run over protesters with your car if you feel threatened. Because me standing there with a picket sign and you in your jacked up Ford truck are feeling oh so vulnerable that it's necessary for you to ram me with that truck. These are the kinds of laws that the state passes and these are racially motivated. Mm -hmm. And even if they're not, racially motivated, um, going back to that bill that had to do with um, intimidating a, a voting, a voter, a precinct volunteer. I, I always, I mean, I also brought up, you know, what if you've got um, people that are in this long line waiting to vote, that's automatically going to irritate people. And then they finally get inside um, on that last election in November, I got several phone calls about straight party voting um, and people being confused about straight party voting. And if you bubble in a straight party and then you also bubble in a person that's not, um, does one cancel out the other and so forth. So um, I ended, I did end up with several phone calls, but I got one in particular where a woman was extremely frustrated because she knew the answer um, for straight party voting, but the volunteer there was giving another person incorrect information. And so this woman, um, and she was a white woman, um, she was very upset about that. And so, I mean, being that I work at the League of Women Voters, I understand, I say that her anger was rightful. You know, it was, ju it was justified. You know, because if you are are a voter, a uh, volunteer, then you should know the facts about straight party voting. You should not be giving incorrect information out. So, but I say that to say, okay, but what if um, you do factor race into that? What if it's a, a black man that um, you're trying to check about or, or he speaks up and says, no, you're giving the incorrect information. And then the, the woman says, Oh, well, you know, this is not even your business. Why are you talking to me? Or what if it's a black woman that has pink hair with her furry shoes on, you know, and quote unquote, the stereotypical ghetto person 
you know, how are they going to be affected by what do we call it by elevating their voices? Because overall, black women and white women, there is a difference between what society sees as justifiable anger and non-justifiable anger. And even if they do the exact same thing, for some reason, the black woman is um, vilified. She's vilified for it, whereas the white woman is praised for it. So when I think about passing more felonies, these are the type of things that go through my head. See, a couple of Two election cycles ago, the first time uh, Trump ran, I was bringing, uh, transporting people to the polls. And I brought a number of elderly people, put them in my minivan, drove them to the polls. By the way, you know, polls are not within walking distance for hardly anybody. If you don't have transportation, it's difficult to vote. So I taken a number of people, many of whom were senior citizens. One lady gets there. She was Hispanic. First of all, she was challenged as to whether or not she was a citizen uh, because she had an Hispanic last name, no accent, by the way, because her family had been here for a couple of generations. And then it turned out that her driver's license was expired. She said, I'm 83. I can't drive anymore. My eyesight's bad. My kids took away the keys. Mm -hmm. They didn't let her vote. Wow. Okay. So um, we've got laws in this state that that say you've got to have a state ID. She had a wallet full of ID. Here's my Medicare card. Here's my credit card. Here's my bank card. Here's my blood donor card. Couldn't She wasn't allowed to vote. Because I was there, she cast her provisional ballot, and she eventually got to cast her ballot. But what if I hadn't been there? She was so angry. She's got a cane. She took the cane and slammed it down on the floor. And all of a sudden, the people behind the desk are backing up. Now, she never brandished this cane toward the people. This was somebody's great-grandmama. She wasn't going to start a fight. She had a broken hip, for God's sake. you know. Um, but that could have been perceived as an aggressive move. Mm-hmm. And had she not been an 83-year-old abuelita, had she been a 23-year-old black man, she probably would have gotten perp walked out of there in cuffs. On the article, because I did read the full article, there was a story about a girl in there um, who eventually had took her life. Um, uh, I think her name was like Dominique or something like that. Um, If you'll just kind of give a quick synopsis of that, that's where I would like to conclude it. Names changed to protect the innocent, but this young woman had been put into foster care because of her mother's substance abuse. And um, she was a lesbian and uh, she she was a young teen when she was placed into care and just discovering who she was. When it became clear that she was, in fact, uh, a lesbian, a young lesbian woman, um, the people she was she was kicked out of her. She came home from school to find all of her belongings in garbage bags and sacks and stuff and her foster parents saying, you got to go. She was placed in group care. By the way, the vast majority of foster teens are in congregate care, which is like a prison, okay? Um, I could go on and on for that for another hour, but congregate care is horrible. Imagine living in a place where they tell you when to get up, when to go to sleep. Once you leave your bedroom, you can't go back in. You frequently don't even attend regular school. A teacher comes in and teaches you. 
all without ever having been adjudicated of a crime. Your crime was being unfortunate enough to be put into care. Anyway, the um, congregate care site was religiously based and they kicked her, short, short story, they kicked her out of there. She ended up bouncing around and running away. She ended up moving in with a relative that lived with a boyfriend. And the boyfriend said, you ain't paying rent, you got to pay something. Mm. The boyfriend impregnated her. When her cousin found out about that, mm -hmm. she kicked her out. She ended up... Um, being picked up again so that she could give birth. She turned herself in so that her she could give birth someplace other than in a cardboard box because mm -hmm. she had been living under a bridge for a while. They took the kid. She um, went back onto the streets and ultimately she took her own life. This is what happens to a child who has committed no crime um, this, this was, she was being unfairly targeted because of who and what she was. The foster care system was unable to accommodate her needs. Um, let's talk about legislation again. One of the things that this state is doing that causes, that contributes strongly to these kinds of problems is to turn public functions over to profit-making companies or private organizations. Had she been in state care, they couldn't have kicked her out because she was gay. But a Christian-centered home was able to do that. That was under contract to DHS, okay? And so turning over public functions to private individuals means removal of protection for the most vulnerable among us. And this is, by the way, this young woman also spent a certain amount of time in the county jail just for be being homeless is a crime. You know, sleeping in, in public is a crime. Uh, it's a misdemeanor. You can get arrested. Um, running away from your, your foster home can get you put into jail, you know, into, into juvenile detention. So the state took the life of this young woman. And were they well-meaning when they, when they separated her from her parents, from her family of origin, for her safety? I believe that they were. I don't think they're monsters. But the system is deeply, deeply flawed. Don't I want to say one quick thing. Mm -hmm. Volunteering is a wonderful thing, but there is no way that private charity can make up for lack of appropriate government. The reason that we have a government is to take care of the people of this governmental entity, the city, the state, the country. That's the reason that government exists, to serve us and to serve our needs. And when you say, let the, the church, let this nonprofit organization feed hungry people, let these other nonprofits or voluntary organizations, Boys and Girls Club, they do a wonderful job, by the way. They can't make up for the lack of governmental action doing the proper role of government, which is to provide that social safety net, to provide a system that works for people so the social safety net isn't even necessary. So if I had one thing to say to the legislature is, you want this state to be number one? Start at the bottom and start fixing what is broken. Because, you know, the odds are that you broke it. 
Ouch. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I, I definitely agree with her. But I also say um, if you are one of the people at the bottom, please reach out to your representative and tell them what you're going through so that they actually can represent you correctly. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.